0: Welcome back to another episode of Other People's Lives. I'm Greg Dybeck.
1: I'm Joe Sanegato. and uh, for those of you who are just listening, we do have the episodes fully available on YouTube now. YouTube.com/slash
0: Other People's Lives. So definitely go check that out. Yeah, come come watch us if you want. And uh, we've got this week's guest on the line right now. Uh, why don't you just tell us what we're going to be talking about today?
2: Hey guys, my name is Sergeant Mitchell, and I'm going to be talking about my experience in combat and PTSD.
0: I can speak for Joe here. We're like completely ignorant to life in the army. And uh, yeah, I think it's like part of it fascinates us a little too. It's like, it's like our obsession with prison. It's like your obsession. with prison. Okay. My obsession with prison. It's just, it's something that's so fascinating, but I just cannot ever imagine being there. Um, And, and I want to ask you, I mean, how young were you? um, I guess when you did join the military, is it something that you knew you, you always wanted to do?
2: So, Every, I think, unique story has a, has a good beginning, right? And mine was, you know, my own experience was, was very unique. I grew up a single child to a lesbian parent. I had no stability for, you know, men in my life or a masculine type of energy in my life. So I knew at, at you know, my junior year of high school, I knew like, hey, I want to go in the Army. And I want to be a ranger. So for some reason, I just stuck with me. I didn't really have a clue of what they were, or what they did. But I know that that's what I wanted to be. So I did the delayed entry program, ended up joining the Army. This was like 2000, right? So this is all pre-stuff that we know uh, for this war. And I was actually uh, – I joined a volunteer three times. So I volunteered to be in the Army. I volunteered for Airborne School and I volunteered for the Ranger Indoctrination Program, which was called RIP. Uh, it's changed now to RASP. But uh, so in, in basic training, I was actually out a, on a field exercise when 9-11 happened. And I <laughs> – it's, it's interesting to me because I, I thought it was part of the training scenario. I didn't think it was like real. I didn't think it was something that was like, okay, there's just mess on this, right? And then the company commander at the time got up on this log and he's talking to all of us and he was like, this is it. You know, like these planes just hit the twin towers. You know, you guys are about to go to war. And then, you know, go to airborne school, graduate airborne school after that. And then I, I go to RIP. And uh, so I was, the, the, the entire time in the Ranger indoctrination program, you know, I was constantly reminded about how small I am. So they they were just like, you're not going to pass. You might as well quit. Uh, there's no way you're going to make it. And then each week, you know, they, they would be like, you know, Mitchell, what are you still doing here? Like, There's no way you're still here. And, uh, and I made it, you know. At that time, we already transferred over to Tampa So I got my beret.
0: I feel like we're just so used to living in like a post 9-11 era that it's crazy to think about being in the Army, being young, in a time of, I guess you could say, relative peace, where it's like, okay, there was an attack on our country, and now you're going to war. I can't imagine what that feeling is.
2: Uh, it was definitely surreal. I mean, at that time, you know, my mom was not all about her kid going into uh, to Ranger Battalion, that's for sure. And she tried to talk me out of it, but there, there was no stopping me. That's a goal that I had and wanted to do it. And then after, you know, after we got that word that we're going to leave, that was my first trip to Afghanistan. And the first portion of that trip, we really just kind of hung out uh, it was around Kandahar at the time. And it's like he was, it's like there was a general just keeping us around just to make him feel safe. That's really what it felt like. And then we ended up, uh, we moved out to uh, an undisclosed location uh, in, a, in a safe house, they'll call it. And I I will never forget doing missions out of that safe house one in particular we're on a night movement uh they have some sf guys some spooks there and they have this guy on this flare device and the sf team is gonna watch our movement they got us right it's a night movement we're walking along and then the entire time they were we we had to burn our shit that's like a thing we had to do back then you know what i mean and they were burning shit so that light just wait actual our shit nexus. They had we had to burn our shit like yeah, human,
0: shit? Well, human shit, human yeah, shit. I didn't so know you could light to. shit on fire. <laughs> All
2: right, it, it's amazing what you can do with JP eight fuel. So <laughs> they put a little fuel in there and they burn it. Well, anyways, they're burning this shit while we're walking, so it drowns out our nods completely, and we were, we were already pissed off about that, right? So we get back, we're like, yeah, what's going on with uh, with the movement? Because they were overwatching our movement. And I think our leaders just wanted to know. You know, like, hey, how did we move? How did it look to you? And they're like, honestly, we saw about half of it. And then we moved into town and we started watching these, uh, these Afghanis have stacks on top of a building. So we have absolutely no clue, like how the rest of your movement went. So it, that deployment, that deployment wasn't too bad. Uh, then we move on and we come back. Right. So we come back from that deployment and now, um, they have this thing called expert infantry Badge, right so infantry people that go for eib and a range of battalion is no different so we during our EIB, uh we got word that the invasion of iraq is going to happen right so at that point in time we get ramped up we finish the ib and then boom we're off okay again staged in an air base somewhere <laughs> okay and and do you guys remember anything about the iraq invasion or like the air campaign that kicked off
0: I don't really remember at all, no. No. Like, what specifically? Like, bombing campaign?
2: Well, what they did is, like, a lot of people, if they remember the war, it, it, they'll think about, okay, I remember watching on the news when we were going over there and we were bombing all the stuff before mm-hmm. troops went in, right? Right. Well, our platoon at the time, and, and mind you, my platoon had a new member for this deployment. I don't know if you guys remember the football player Pat Tillman?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pat Tillman
2: was in my platoon, he was a great dude. Him and mm-hmm. his brother, Kevin. Alright, so
0: so Pat Tillman is the for anyone who doesn't know, he didn't he he left the NFL. Yeah, he right? left the NFL to serve to serve. Yeah, correct, yeah.
2: definitely. Yeah. Number forty, Arizona Cardinal. He was a great football yeah. player. Yeah. I mean and so he, great. He, he
0: ended up getting killed, no? Yeah. He did. Yeah.
2: Wow. He did on a on a on a later deployment. So, you know, here we are, ready to go. And we're we get word that President Bush wants a hit and Saddam's hometown, kind of like a show of force. And he wants it into crit. So that's where Saddam's from. If nobody knows. So we go over there and do this mission. You know, we're taking rounds. Like, first off, the mission itself was like Groundhog Day because where we were staged out of, um, each time we went out to these helicopters to get ready for this mission, they would cancel it for weather. It's like weather, weather. This is like three days in a row. We go out there and get ready to do this mission. So we finally load the birds. Uh, we take off. We're taking shots out um into our aircraft but for some reason we had our doors closed while we we're infilling so they open the doors i'm sitting in the middle little specialist you and my saw and there are people hanging out you know of the bird just like shooting you know these guys they're shooting us from trenches it's probably about two clicks out from the objective and then we're turning fire we fast rope in we set up four corners if you guys ever watched the movie black rock down
1: yeah yeah yeah
2: so like that movie where you kind of like set up a perimeter four corners and some other cool dudes go in and do stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We were doing that. And on my particular section, I'll never forget. This it was a night mission. Um, the cool guys that came in right after us. Um, these are, I mean, I'm, you know, still team six guys. So it wasn't like CAG or anything like that. They, they come in on their bird, which is a, was this Chinook? Their door gunner actually got shot in the head right on them. So, so there's a lot of stuff popping off. And it's a nighttime mission, so all of these, you know, you got your, your night vision device on, so everything's like green, right? And the only way that they can see stuff is through infrared, so there's IR lights everywhere. And I just, I'll never forget little birds, all right? These little, little helicopters flying around with SEAL snipers hanging off of them, just plucking dudes left and right. And then this vehicle comes up to a, one of our blocking positions, our 240 gunner, you know, shoots the vehicle, but doesn't kill the occupants, so they just keep rolling, but they're shooting at us with small arms. And then it gets, I know they're coming. Like, it's that moment where you're like, they're coming to my side. They come to my side. And my buddy Frank was right next to me. Um, and I had my 249. I just remember lighting this car up, right? I light the car up. And somebody gets out of the car. You see the dome light come on. And all this stuff kind of happens in slow motion, right? So you see the dome light come on and somebody gets out. Military-age He's got a weapon. But he's, you know, he's getting ready to do something. And I'll never forget, you know, my platoon leader... Who was there, close to my squad leader, in my black and position. It was like kill somebody, kill that motherfucker, you know, kill him. So I just remember taking a knee, clicking that laser on, shooting a burst. Guy falls, and like a scene from a movie, that little bird with the IR light comes in and hovers over him, and you can just see that IR light on this guy, right? And then we head back. Uh, we load up after this mission, and we have to stop at some place. It's a it's a refuel point for the birds, right? It's called a fart. And I just remember my buddy Sewell, you know, he's like, dude, you killed somebody, you know, like you, you you got that dude. And then we get back from that mission, and my team leader in Ranger Battalion at the time was like, Hey Mitchell, how many rounds did you shoot? I was like, I, I don't know, like I think it was like twenty. It was a big burst. I shot like two bursts in this guy, right? So then he then he like smokes me and he makes me do push ups because I shot too many rounds. He said I was wasting mission.
0: <laughs> Um, I mean, I think we have to ask, or we would be doing a disservice to everyone listening because that was probably one of the most intense stories that have ever been told on this podcast. Um, you know what, I mean, what, what would you say prepares you to, to do that? I mean, I know you're, it's the mission, it's the operation, it's what you have to do for the safety of you and your team. Um, you know, can you prepare for a moment like that? um yes. is is it just instinctive at that point and and how do you you know begin to kind of digest um something like that
2: so the rangers in general they're a morally soldier who arrive at the cutting edge of battle by lance or air ranger battalion that mentality prepares you for anything and in that moment it was just like a training exercise because mm. rangers train three times harder than they'll ever fight mm. None of my combat experience with Ranger Battalion was ever harder than our training. Ever. Period. But I actually have, you know, a soldier of mine that I would love to join this conversation. Uh, his name's John Bailey, and he could share great insights for our, our time in the search.
0: Yeah, we've got John on the line now, too. How's it going, John?
3: Hey, guys. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for joining. Uh, thanks, man. Well, I heard you say something about uh, what prepares you. For uh, going into combat and things like that, and there's there's actually a definition, and it's a, it's the definition is what's called a battle drill, and it's what we train in the infantry, and it's probably one of the co- most cold blooded things I've ever read in my life, <clears throat> and what it is verbatim is a collective action rapidly executed without applying a deliberate decision making process. So, without applying a deliberate decision making process it's it's pretty wild. So when you when you get into those situations you you are more reacting than and anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but, it, sounds yeah like, exactly.
1: it sounds like muscle memory and more like you said reaction more than and not much thinking, just reaction.
3: Right. I mean, we got to tra- like 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 Sean said, we got to train for 2 years. I mean, that's that's a long amount of time. Not most units are are fortunate enough to do that. And we we were together. He was my team leader from basically the time I was a private in the military till you know, our deployment. And when when we got over there, the first couple of months, I mean, we really weren't doing anything. We were kind of just handing out generators and and getting ready. They kept telling us we were getting ready to, to go across the water. We really didn't know what that meant. So we were handing out generators you know, doing hearts and minds, making sure everyone got fed, that there was power inside the cities, running water. And in the just, green zone, no less. In, in, in the green zone, yeah, in the green zone, no less. Because like you said before, you know, they sent I think like 15 or 20,000 extra troops during the surge because it was, you know, we were kind of losing stuff. And, uh, you know, we, we moved around out of the green zone to a couple of cops. And um, then they said, well, we're going to send you guys across the water to this place called Aldora. Now, in this place, Aldora, there haven't been coalition forces there for about eight months. So that's a long time for people to dig in and, you know, kind of just start running stuff. Mm. Now, when I got to Aldora, I was probably like 20 years old and I came from a pretty hard place in the U.S. I mean, I came from like, yeah, but this is a pretty hard area. I've never seen people look at me like I was, you know, messed up for being somewhere. Like, you see, you hear about people wearing black masks and like walking around with guns. Yeah that was happening it was crazy to see i never i it was like crazy you just like get off your truck it's like bang bang firefight Hmm. you're gonna you're you're gonna you're gonna start getting shot at we we used all of the smoke like smoke grenades inside of the country because the sniper threat was so scary like the sniper threat was so there and real that to move from building to building you had to throw smoke and let it billow so that you could run through the smoke to get into your next objective. And then
2: infilling into this place was insane. So we get on the ground (laughs) and we know that we're going to replace an adjacent company. And the look that these guys gave us, they're like, have fun, dude. All right, bye. We're going to make sure you throw smoke everywhere.
0: Jeez.
3: Yeah. Like, don't go down that alleyway we got shot at. Like, you got to jump that wall. I'll never forget it. You got to jump that wall. You can't go around the gate. The gate's locked. (laughs) It was was just a... uh... It's something that... You really can't prepare yourself for it, no matter how much someone tells you and the way I describe it for anyone That will never be there is The the philosopher Plato He has this thing called the anthology of the cave and what it is is me you Everyone we know we're just looking at a wall There's a fire behind us and that's all we've done our whole life. We're chained together you know all you ever see is your reflection on the wall and maybe a person walking by, you know, with just their reflection. One day that chain breaks and you see a light at the end of the tunnel and you go outside that, that to see where that light is. And all of a sudden you're outside of a cave and you see a whole another world.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Trying to explain that whole other world to someone that's back, been chained up their whole life, it's, it's really, really, really difficult. I mean, it's, it's not even so much always terrible. It's just different. I mean you're you're dealing with a completely different culture. The people there aren't all terrible by any means. Like most of them they're they're great human beings. I just there's sometimes it, they, bad things happen and when they happen they happen extremely fast. I
0: do want to ask too like going into an, an area of this where y- I guess it's it's an understanding that there there will be a lot of combat and conflict is there a fine line between fear and excitement. Do do you want combat? Is that something that you kind of seek out? I mean, so just joining all... the military in general, is that something that you in a way yeah. hope for? That's yeah, I all think, Go I think ahead, it's try. interesting
2: that I think it's interesting that he brings that up because it actually goes back to Dora. Yeah. In our experience in Dora, we were split up. So our platoon actually held down the road, I mean, let's say if you if you look down, you guys are in New York, right? So if you're looking down, and you see one, one street, and it links up like between first and second or something like that. And you're mm-hmm. actually like, all right, I'm gonna own first, right? All the bad guys are on second. Well, if you split up first, we got we got our platoon down the road, and all of a sudden it was it was myself, it was John, it was dude John Wallace by ourselves, and they stuck our team out to this little safe house. You know, like you guys are going to own this. Here's your radio. Good luck, right? So, we're, we're hanging on this, and you're talking about it you know, excitement and, and, and duty. So, that really ties into our experience in this house that we were in in Dora. And, and John, I mean, you can definitely attest to that. It was a huge difference between us and the rest of the element.
3: Yeah, it was uh, It was definitely, I mean, our, our house was also being pointed out by people, and like we were, we were getting. People knew where we were. That's all I can really say. Like a lot of other folks were hidden. Like people knew we were in that house. Just like, And uh, just three of you. Just, yeah, just three of us. Like, uh, we, we probably pulled in about 30 people. So three of us were watching about 30 men. Like just had to have them in a room and we had to keep them there. Cause our, our mission was to keep every single military age male that walked down that street. You need to pull them inside this house until we can question them. Because,
0: oh, because- so, okay. That's what you mean by pulling in. So, oh wow. And that's, that's actually a question i have i think that that brings up a good point like the rules of engagement over there does it make it difficult for you to fight and like is it difficult to i assume fight in a place where the enemy and the civilian kind of blend like like you're saying like you there's questioning you don't know who's who you don't know who is just living there trying to get by, and who is plotting to, you know, kill you as soon as they get a chance.
1: Yeah, and someone said earlier that people just carry guns, so it's. I I feel like it would be hard to tell, like, who's a civilian and who's actually coming to attack you.
2: Well, that's actually the reason the surge was so difficult. So when the surge actually kicked off, we started they started uh we started making these combat outposts so we made cops all around baghdad and originally when these cops were were manned by these uh units that were over there at the time prior to our arrival the the fighters they would attack these cops as hard as they could and as fast as they could and they started realizing something like hey we can't win this we're not going to win by attacking these cops so it got really quiet for a little bit um it got quiet meaning that they just blent into a population that was easy to hide amongst because everyone looks the same. Everyone's, you know what I mean? It's not like they're wearing a traditional military uniform on a force on force element. where it's, right. they have these uniforms and you know who they are. So they were able to blend in for a long time. And once they started blending in, they had, uh, they had Baghdad and then had the outskirts of Baghdad. Now Baghdad is where they come in and they try to attack, uh, you know, three targets mainly. So they want to, they want to attack, um iraqis they want to attack uh iraqi you know police and then third they were going to target the coalition forces um so they were actually over there to do horrible horrible things to the iraqi people and you know when they first when they finally started realizing that they would go to the outskirts they would seek safe haven and they would come back to baghdad and fight there were small places inside of baghdad that they really wanted to, to focus um you know, these efforts to cause this strife between two factions of Shia and Sunni, right. and one of those was Aldora.
3: Yeah. It was uh it was like the wild west in Aldora. Um so we the, the one time something that me and Sean had happened is we had a kid one day, he was like I said, people kinda knew where we were, but this kid this kid was kind of going above and beyond to really point point out our location and to, to kind of make sure that we, you know, were being seen. And, uh, you know, we got the call one day we, we called up and, you know, told them what was going on and, you know, we got the call to go to the truck and get the M14 and the M14 is, uh, just a larger caliber rifle. And, uh, you know, they wanted to, they wanted to make sure that this kid stopped pointing out our location. So
2: how old was uh, this kid?
3: Uh, 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 uh see, that's the thing he was probably i want to say between 14 and 16 so really probably didn't understand what he was doing and uh i mean yeah kid really didn't know what what he was doing and you know sean got behind the gun and i asked him i said look you know you've you've done this before you know he told you about his ranger battalion days i said can i take the shot and he said yeah no problem he uh he let me behind the gun and he said, look, put it center mass, hold on, hold on one second. I got to, uh, I got to call up for, you know, authority. I got to make sure it's, it's, it's a good shot. So he walks behind, he walks behind the, the, the wall because there's a wall upstairs. <clears throat> he walks behind and, uh, you know, he stands there for about 30 seconds, calls up for, uh, you know, clearance on the shot, comes back around. And this is where, you know, he makes one of the best command decisions I've ever had made in my life. He tells me not to take the shot. Oh, I'm
2: so happy! That's-
1: <laughs> <clears throat> wow. So, what what was the reason behind not taking the shot? It was because he was he uh, just too young to take the shot, or what was the reason?
3: Yo, just because you're at war, man, you still got you. You still have decisions you got to make, right? So you you still have to live with everything you do. Like that's that's the thing that a lot of people don't get. You have to live with every decision you make, and that just would have been a bad decision. And luckily, he. He saw that and he made that call. Wow. I didn't, I didn't find out until about five years later when I was best man at his wedding that Baxo told me to smoke that kid. Like, that kid should have definitely got shot. And, like, I luckily, like I, I I been so happy about it every day of my life that that shot was not taken because it would have been regrettable. I is, mean, there,
1: like I is there consequences for, because I'm assuming there was an order to take that shot and then, he, but he has the authority <clears throat> to make the call. Is that the case?
3: I think uh, it was just kind of one of those on the the spot calls where it was just like, you know what? That's kind of, kind of messed up. Don't, 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 don't shoot, don't shoot that kid.
0: Sean, what, what makes you make that decision? Because at the same time, is it putting you at risk if someone like that kid is still out there kind of pointing out your position? I, how do you choose between, you know, safety of you and your team and, and potentially making a regrettable decision?
2: like I said, each, each one of these trips is, is unique. And then what we, what we have to understand is that we're ultimately in somebody else's neighborhood. This is ultimately places where people have to live. And then sometimes you got to take yourself out from this weird Stanford prison experiment and understand that you're, you're, you're a visitor, you know, and these kids were just being kids, man. And then you get some other people, that might view this and they try to make up these scenarios sometimes in their head to where it's like, this guy's bad. This guy's bad. Yeah. And it's, and it's fitting their own, it's fitting some narrative that they want them to fit, you know? And, and at that point in time, it's being greater than the moment. And it's understanding that, you know, Hey, look, my first and foremost duty here is to take care of these guys and then make sure that they're okay. And that came from, that decision that came from the decision to find some locks and lock up the door so we can get a little bit of sleep every night. Yeah. And, and and that was very important. And we called this place Steve's house. So this was a this house that we were in was actually an old dentistry area. So this was a dentist that stayed there. Of course it was all messed up at the time. Yeah. There's a front door, a back door. It's connected to adjacent buildings next to it just like shopping centers you'll see in the city. And uh, on the back side of it, that back door and then the upstairs you can see out a window and that's where this uh this you know we had glass we had a uh, you know we had eyes on down the road we could see this neighborhood you know this is this neighborhood and then there's this one little room inside of it probably where Steve had his uh his
3: office <laughs> his chair, yeah
2: yeah and then uh we would you know i i we would lock up the the front door and the back door at night and i would you know we'd have them we'd rotate off shifts so we could actually sleep at night and then that you know that was Steve's house, and then we have this place called Ryan.
3: Okay, Copparia. So Copparia was. Hold on, let us situate ourselves to yeah. another story. The way that you breathed like, that, you're like, over are like, "All
1: right, here we go." I was like, "Well, my God."
3: <laughs> yeah. All right. So Copparia is very is a very 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 personal story to me, uh, and it's another one of those things where I didn't find out the whole story until years later. So, top pariah, there was a scheduling mistake between when forces were supposed to take over the section of Baghdad. He had the 101st Airborne that was supposed to take the section over from the 82nd Airborne. Uh, but there was about a two-week lull period where they're just, they're just, what, they weren't in country or something happened where their, their leadership wasn't ready for the right seat, left seat rides, or I don't know, something happened where we had to basically take over a section and then hand that section over right away the cop was a dingy basement <clears throat> that just had a bunch of concrete barriers around it. Um, it, there really wasn't much, there was cots in there and, uh, like a TV. So the, really, there wasn't much there. Um, we ran a lot of missions out of here and the, 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 I don't know what's up at the 82nd airborne, but they were really aggressive with the local population, like really, really aggressive with these people. I don't know if that was their mission or their plan or that was just how they you know did did their thing but they were extremely aggressive with the the local population around there for no reason and you know we take it over we're uh Operating we do a couple raids hit a couple of big caches of cash and weapons So we know people are pissed off at us now because we definitely just took like a couple hundred thousand dollars and we Found like a bunch of rooms were like full of weapons, so we we really hit whatever like the J Shalmati was there. We really hit the jam hard, like within a couple of days, and we uh one one night we're out on a, we're out on missions, and um, you know we come back to the top to refit and then to go back out. I'm uh, I'm currently driving the vehicle at the time now. I I'm not really a driver. I've driven a couple like maybe like for like a week or two like i'm i'm a six foot five dude i usually kick doors and i'm not behind a driver's wheel of a vehicle and And, the vehicle is a
2: striker by the way
3: yeah the vehicle is a striker, which is like a phenomenal 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 combat vehicle (laughs) and uh i have a i i was running my mouth the whole time i was really really making the uh, platoon sergeant med and um we call up all of our packs which is all the people and we're in line, ready to go out the gate. The gate lifts. Now, when the gate lifts, you you start your mission. That's that's it. The gate lifted. You go and come back. Well, <clears throat> for some reason, uh, the gate drops. And Sergeant Martin drops out. And he's like, Bailey, get out of the vehicle. You're like, you're staying back with your squad. You guys are pulling security. Like, just, just get out. Like, someone else is going to come over here and take your place. Like, just, just grab your gun and get out. So, I get my get. I get out of the truck. I, uh, I go inside. I eat some food. And then uh, I go up to, like, the northwest corner of the tower. Sitting there pulling guard, you know, just doing my thing. Watching, making sure no one's coming around. It's nighttime. It's, like, real dark out. And all you hear is, woof through the city. Like, a deep, like, not a bomb. There's a whoof sound and i look over and i'm with this guy named casillas and i'm like yo someone just got messed up and he's like yo our boys are out there right now didn't think about that because i'm on i'm back at the cop so i assume my all my friends are back at the cop too because that's usually what happens well it turns out our three two vehicle got hit the vehicle i was sitting in and the driver lost his legs from an efp they called me up dead over the radio Because they thought I was still in the driver's hatch. And the truck burnt down to the ground right in the middle of the city. All of our ordinance burnt down, blew up, exploded off of it. Cooked off all the rounds, burnt down all of our mail. And luckily, you know, no one really got hurt besides Josh. Josh got – he lost his legs above his knee. Um, Our our interpreter. Going back to Josh, so
2: before the striker burnt down, he is – Inside the driver's hatch, and his team leader at the time, this dude Ryan Van Vandal, oh my god, I jumps on the truck, opens up the hatch, and tries to pull Josh out to safety. Well, he's he's stuck, and the reason he's stuck is because part of his legs are still attached, right? They're, Most of them they're, are gone. So, so, quick thinking, Ryan pulls out a knife and cuts the remaining of the flesh of his legs off so he
3: can save his life. Yeah, he was wrapped around the steering wheel, his legs were wrapped around the steering wheel, and he was on fire, he was he was completely on fire and um uh, no burns uh no scratches no cuts uh you know lost his legs and that was it and they said you know doc kellen our medic it like, was just johnny on the spot you know plugged them with a couple of IVs. they, they said at the the cash that they were they've never seen tourniquets put on like that before that they were perfect Um, uh, i mean they just said that it was like one two three people reacted to it and they saved his life uh, I mean, he's – yeah, he's doing good today. Wow.
0: What well, goes through your mind knowing that you were about to be in that same exact position?
3: Yo, let Sean tell you the rest of it. You want to <laughs> know, know why I wasn't in that seat? <laughs> yeah, so I I made it a point to uh, to
2: have the rest of my team. If we're all going to be there on guard, I want to have my team together. It, it wasn't – I don't think it was necessarily – you know, some leaders have different aspects on this, but I, I think for the most part, they always want to have their guys with them, you know, no matter what they're doing. So I made it a big point to, to complain. I was pretty vocal to my squad leader and platoon sergeant that I wanted John to stay back. And then the platoon sergeant wasn't wasn't convinced, but thanks to, to John's vocalness inside the truck, uh, Eddie kicked him <laughs> out, you know, and I already planted that seed. But yeah... You, if, if you guys are ready for, for another good story, John, thank you so much, dude. I love you.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you guys. Yeah, John, thank
0: you so much. I do want to ask one more question before you leave. Sure. And this, this is something that I think goes back to what you said before. And, and I'm just so interested in kind of like the psychology behind this. There was a moment when you were telling a story before where you specifically asked to take the shot when, when we were talking about the kid, right if it's even possible to explain kind of the thought process behind you know knowing you didn't have to why like why offer that up why to
3: to take the shot because you already asked that question in the beginning do you do you want to do it or not why'd you go to war why'd you join the infantry so all that sounds good and it's good while you're doing it until it's happening back to you and that first bomb goes off once you hear bombs you stop wanting to fight, hmm. then it, it stops becoming a joke. It stops being you're the you're the winner all the time. You know things can happen to you. So wanting to take that shot, I just wanted to experience war. I was a young guy. You know what I mean. I was I was twenty. I didn't know any better, and it was something that I was excited for. And I thank God every day that I didn't take that shot. I, I really do. I think about it often. I probably crosses my mind at least once a week what would have happened because, I mean there there was no missing there there was no missing this there there was i mean he was but maybe 50 yards away so there wasn't a there wasn't a miss his whole family was there he was probably holding his little brother or sister like there there was no missing this and it would have been a terrible horrible scene and honestly like i'm happy sean didn't do it and i'm happy i said something to him so i didn't let him take that shot because for all i know he might want to take that shot in front of me
2: well
0: yeah well, yeah, no, we'll uh we'll let Sean finish everything up. But thank you so much for coming on, sharing that you know perspective. Yeah, thank uh, you so much. Yeah, no problem. And thank I, you for I, your service, of course.
3: No problem, man. I appreciate it. I hope you guys have uh, a great day, and I'll talk to you again. Thanks. All right, bye.
0: Yes. Yeah, so All right. Here,
2: here we go. Later on in that same deployment, um, we have a houseborn IED who actually kills. Six of our soldiers and one interpreter in Central Iraq. And this is the Sensil 7. Um, now, when this happens on 9 January 2008, I'm still with John over at a different company. And unfortunately, they have the task with replacing all of these soldiers. They have to go out to the battalion and, and pick people for scouts. So here I am going to scouts. And, you know, some of the missions that we did over there, these. Missions where you have assets and the assets ping and then you, you, know, you land close on your helicopter and you go take out the bad guy, right? One of these missions will, will never leave my memory because it went really bad really fast. Um, I was on Overwatch, overwatching another team about to enter a, a house and clear it. The target that we were going after, um, un- unbeknownst to us, had, had put his family inside the courtyard Uh, to basically shield himself from anybody trying to infill the house as he slept inside. Uh, The team goes up. They place a charge on the gate. uh, They blow the charge, and everyone inside the courtyard courtyard just gets horrifically injured. So moving the team away, they have the medics start treating. They push that team that initially entered because they were so close to it. They pushed them on security, and they pushed our team in to actually treat they injured and we were there in a matter of like a minute. Right. So I just remember, you know, helping out as much as I could. Um, there, there is a, a teenage girl that's horrifically injured. Uh, she's being treated. There's a boy being treated by, you know, two, two of my soldiers. And I'm, I'm sitting here with this infant. And I just remember, you know, bandaging this infant and holding this infant, treating it while directing traffic and the, the baby stops crying. It just went silent. And I was like, no, (laughs) no. And then the baby starts crying again, thank God. And I just look around and there's an Iraqi lady just standing next to me crying. And I was like, please take this baby. And the interpreter asked her to care for the baby and she's told me, thank you. And we called in uh, a medevac bird and we didn't have a litter at the time, but you know, we, we used what we had. Uh, which was a carpet, and we moved that girl because she was the worst injured off to the bird, and everyone survived. All of those people survived, wow. and we we captured the bad guy.
1: Wow, this has been an intense. However long it's been, let me tell you,
0: I feel like it's been seven days. Yeah, <laughs> and it,
1: and I mean it. The I feel like that's kind of a perfect way to segue into. Um, you know, the PTSD side of, uh, you know, your story. Because, I mean, you're just telling us a few stories. We're not able to put ourselves in your shoes or anything like that or really experience it. And even us right now just hearing it, sitting on these recliners, like just talking to you all over the phone, we can feel the anxiety and stress of the situations on a very small scale. And it still feels like, whoa. So I can only imagine like actually going through it and uh, you know, the effects that that has. So, um, you know, I'm sure it would be very helpful to hear your experience with PTSD, how it affects you and how you kind of, you know, cope with it. Um, so can you tell us about
2: that? You know, like I said previously, I, I'm not an expert on PTSD. I'm still learning everything myself. But what I can try to convey to people that are dealing with traumatic events. Um, one is that not every not every traumatic event is just combat related there are people out there dealing with ptsd that have had traumatic incidents happen in their lives whether it be car crashes or some other horrible events that they just can't escape and my advice to these people and again i'm no expert is to honestly listen to those people that care about them the most around them because for me um my support network and of course i i you know, I can't think enough. Um, my wife, Elena, who's been my rock through this whole thing. And and that's that. It's that support network that we have to have. It's that caregiver that we have to have that helps us through and helps us maintain. And if you're listening now and you don't think you have that person, if anybody's been around you and they tell you that you have these signs and symptoms, and I just want to briefly talk about some of them. And like I said, I'm no expert, but, you know, here are the, some issues that that I've, you know, that I've been made aware to myself. Uh, One of those is sleep issues, nightmares, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, emotional numbing, irritability, periods of hyperactivity that are followed by periods of withdrawal, hypervigilance, memory issues, impulses, need for control, and avoidance. Now, for me, this comes in a myriad of ways. So the way that I dealt with my anxiety and depression was this use of alcohol. I used to abuse alcohol severely, and I just tried to drown out these emotions and try to basically numb myself to everything that I was feeling. And, it, you know, and Alina helped me realize that in a loving way, and it's with care and concern. And, you know, so I stopped drinking. Um, I actually... The Army has a program called Alcohol, Substance, and Abuse Program. It it works very well. I self-enrolled myself, and I I decided to go abstain and abstain from alcohol after that. I'm very glad that I did. And then, you know, currently I'm stationed down in uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana, so I work for this operations group at JRTC. JRTC is the Joint Rotational Training Center. Um, All the units come here to to train, but you know, good army stuff before they take off. And I had the opportunity of working at, uh, this place called live fire division and working at live fire, you know, people that come down here and train part of their training is with, you know, blank rounds and lasers. It's like they're playing laser tag with this miles equipment. But when they come to live live fire, the blank adapters come off and we're going to shoot live rounds. Right. So at the time for this one particular mission, I was shot calling an objective um, it was a follow on objective for a company. So they had two other companies, um, hit, a, hit this objective before they came to us. So, you know, they hit Puma, they're going to Cheetah. I'm shot calling Cheetah. I have two target operators over with me and one actually goes in the cardiac arrest. And again, you're going to that point to where you got to stop the mission. You got to make things happen. So there I am directing traffic again getting stuff done and everybody, that was on that mission. Did everything they could to save this man's life, but unfortunately, they couldn't. And so, after that, you know, that that hit me, and that brought back some stuff that obviously I had internally that I, that I was trying to suppress. And then I end up, you know, becoming pretty pretty upset about that. My wife recommended that I go see seek behavioral health, so I actually went and talked to a therapist. And after talking to a therapist, they're like, "Look, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to admit you." So I was suicidal at the time, and they actually sent me to Longleaf Medical here in Alexandria, Louisiana, and I was admitted to an inpatient for about a week. And, I mean, one of those places where you can't have laces in your shoes, right? And, you know, after I came out of that treatment, you know, that the, the operations group took great care of me, uh, my first sergeant, first on Rollins, talked to my sergeant major and they actually found me a position inside of operations group where I have like a desk job now. And, you know, light, life is really good, but it's through that support system that I had, especially with my wife, that I was able to come come back from that dark place and realize that, you know, life is, life is better. Life is better and it's worth living. Don't, you know, make a lifelong decision based on one choice. You know what I'm saying? Like everything's worth it. Life itself is, you know, it, it's so much better than the dark place that you might be feeling right now. And this dark place that you feel, it's kind of like having a hidden monster, right? So when you have this hidden monster, you know, when people have a broken leg, you can see, man, they got a broken leg, they're limping, it's something visible. When you're dealing with signs of, of symptoms of PTSD, it's hidden, you know, this anxiety's hidden, this depression's hidden. I mean, this hyper exists to this day. I, I can't go around crowds. It's very difficult for me. I'm watching everyone's hands all the time mm. and it becomes part of your norm. Like, you, you know what I mean? This is your normal. This is how you operate, but it's not normal at the same time. That's not something that you should be doing all the time, but it just becomes something that, you know, and for me, I think, uh, an outlet, you know, for me, especially in social situations is humor. You know, I, I, I mask a lot of my symptoms behind comedy. I try to make people laugh around me and and that brings me joy. So I I definitely appreciate that. Um, Apologies to anybody. If I've ever said bad jokes, you just have to deal with it. But (laughs) (laughs) this is one of those things. And and I'm I'm just very, very lucky to have the support network that I do. Um, And I, I plead for anybody. If you think that you have any form of PTSD, a lot of these things are not right out in the open until a traumatic event happens. And then all of a sudden you need to get treatment. How about we try to offset that need for treatment and just go get it right away. Go talk to somebody right now. Don't wait till something traumatic happens before you have to seek help.
0: It's fantastic advice. That That's a good yeah. point. And, and yeah, I mean, uh, of course it can come in all different forms. And, you know, I think we've, once briefly touched on it before um in an episode with the a survivor of the vegas shooting mm-hmm. and and her telling us how she was at dinner with her family i think a car like backfired or whatever in the parking lot and she physically got up and ran from the restaurant uncontrollably right. and just like i think it could just show how severe some of these symptoms are but i think like you said um you know it's it's not always that severe and and they're invisible. And, you know, you might be the only one who understands them and it helps to, you know, talk about these and and find your support system. Um, And I think that's, you know, really, really helpful. And, you know, I think you've been kind of one of the most candid, you know, open guests that we've had on and, you know, we appreciate that so much.
2: Yeah, thank you guys so much. I definitely want to send some rest and peace uh, to some soldiers that I've lost along the way, if you guys don't mind. Absolutely, of please. So 14 November 2003, Jay Blessing. 22 April 2004, Pat Tillman. 08 April 2005, Niels Thompson. 9 January 2008, The Central 7, Matthew Pionk, Sean Gall, Jonathan Dozier, Christopher Sanders, Zachary McBride todd davis and interpreter muhammad rest in peace we love you guys thank you for your service
0: we really appreciate that man and, yeah dude uh, thank you th- thank you for your service and and really just putting i think um you know just just that human element behind all of this i think for us it's so easy and you know we sit there and we know you know we know there's wars a war going on we know there's operations but <laughs> you know, just to hear about some of these situations, the day to day that you've lived out, um, you know, just that reminder, like soldiers, they are just people too. And a lot of them are in first time situations. Uh, and it really helps to hear those stories.
1: Yeah. And we know that it might not be the the easiest thing in the world for people to talk about this. So we definitely appreciate you coming on. And, um, you know, we're very happy to hear that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in a good place and you're working towards, um, you know getting better as far as the the ptsd goes and um yeah just thank you for your service really appreciate it man
2: yeah thank you joe thank you greg thank you cole behind the scenes you guys put on a great show and i appreciate what you guys do as well
0: thank you so much man thank you man have a good night
2: yeah take care guys
1: all right. So our first sponsor for today is BetterHelp. BetterHelp uh, will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. So they're very quick to, to uh, hook you up with somebody. Uh, the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. Uh, you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room uh like with traditional therapy. Uh BetterHelp is also committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and uh free to change counselors if needed, uh which is huge. Um but yeah, uh it's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial of va- uh, financial aid is available.
0: Yeah, and all you need to do is visit betterhelp.com/opl. That's betterhelp h e l p Uh, slash dot com slash OPL and you can join over 700,000 people that are taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional and uh, there's a special offer for other people's lives listeners you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash OPL
1: our next sponsor is honey
0: I love honey honey is a free online shopping tool that automatically finds the best promo codes and applies them to your cart. Uh, it's amazing saving with Honey. I use it personally all the time. Uh, recently, since me and Joe are into boxing now, I needed some boxing shoes. Put them in my cart. Honey, right on my browser, gave me a 25% promo code that worked. I ended up saving like $28.75. Um, all because Honey you know, was, was right there on my browser. Uh, honey has found... Over 18 million members, over two billion dollars in savings. Uh, it's like it's free savings basically, and uh, it supports over 30,000 stores online, including Macy's, Target, Sephora, Best Buy, and more. And they're adding more stores every single day. And users love Honey. It has over a hundred thousand uh five star reviews on the Google Chrome store.
1: Yeah, you uh, the one of the most fun things about Honey now when you use it is like being on a site and you're like, "Oh, look, there's discounts for this site also." It's amazing. You could save uh, save on sites that you didn't even know existed. It's amazing. Uh plus it's free to use and in, installs in just a few seconds. Um get Honey for free at joinhoney.com/opl. Makes no sense why you wouldn't get this. You're saving money. It's free to have. Go to uh, joinhoney.com slash OPL today. That is joinhoney.com slash OPL.
0: Our next sponsor is Undercover Tourists.
1: I'm actually going to take over this one because I uh, went to Disney recently and Undercover tourists was I didn't know what they were yet. And now that I do, I wish I could have used them because if you're planning a vacation, you know it's hard work and overwhelming, especially if you're going to a theme park, which what is what they specialize in. You can get the exact same tickets to theme parks you know and love for less and there's no catch. You can save up to $145 to on each theme park ticket, uh, which is a ton, especially when you're going with like a family of four or six. I think I went with eight people, so I would have been saving the world. And it was costly. You're I wanted mad, to do you're a nice mad thing. right now. I wish I had it. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> uh, 20 years of quality service, providing theme park and attraction tickets at discounted prices. A plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Nice um, But yeah It's hassle free Email or physical t- tickets Skip the lines at the gate And go straight to the rides 90 um, day ticket returns um, But yeah And also they, they have this thing it's, it's a free planning tool So if you go Like theme parks There's a billion things to do there um, So they have free park plans What to do and when Saving you on average Four hours a day um, Not standing in line So this place If you're going to a theme park If you're going to Disney Definitely Definitely use Undercover Tourist.
0: This, this makes sense and I want to go to a theme park right now, but uh, yeah. if you do, you can start planning your next theme park vacation now by visiting UndercoverTourist.com slash OPL and that's an additional discount that you get using OPL on top of the big savings already offered uh, through Undercover Tourist. So that's UndercoverTourist.com slash OPL uh, Go save that money and book a trip. Ugh, you know when you like see like an a I feel crazy like I, epic movie. I feel
1: like I just breathed for the first time since yeah, we yeah, hit record.
0: Yeah. I feel like I just got to have like a four hour movie and like Man, the lights came on. See, like it's
1: it's crazy because, like, you you and like we don't we won't even know like what we think we'll how never. that went, like how you pictured it when they were telling those stories. It was probably four hundred times worse, and it was just like. It's wild, man. Like it's it's really it's really crazy. Like and and the thing that's crazy about it is that people sign up to do it because mm-hmm. and and thank God they do because if they didn't then who knows
0: what would happen. Yes. But that's the thing. Uh, this is just that reminder that sure some people go out of their way to sign up, they they might seek it, but it doesn't make a difference. The, he is us, you know, him and Sean and John who we just spoke to that could be us. That yeah. could be us going through 2 years of training and then finding ourselves in that situation. Like there's no this is the same species. This is this these are the same people. They they're not yeah. super people. Like it is just us. It's an average person in these situations. Um and I think some of those stories like that just really, you know, it 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 hit hard and for some reason I just like <laughs> Get, like, I don't know what they look like, but I kept picturing us for some reason. Really? Which is weird. I don't know why. Um, but also their friendship and that experience is, yeah. you know, pretty, pretty amazing. Um,
1: Dude, I just can't wow. even picture that. And like, you know, we, we the military, anyone who, who is in the military has served, if their family has served, like we thank all of you guys for your service uh, and and especially these two, two guys coming on and giving perspective to everyone that listens to the show about, you know, how real it is and then also dealing with the effects after that because, then you know, it's one thing to go to war. You survive. You go through all these traumatic experiences every single day. And then you come home and then there's after effects, you know, right. like you don't then you deal with that, you know, for the rest of your life and then you have to try and uh, get back to like a normal way of living you know and going to the grocery store like yeah and like he was talking about i can't really be around crowds because i'm looking at everyone's hands and making sure they're not pulling a gun or something yeah you know
0: yeah no it's um you know and it it reminds me of um so tim o'brien he's a vietnam war vet he's an author he wrote a few books uh, and i've been watching this documentary about the vietnam war and one of his quotes was just talking about bravery in the sense of like it doesn't have to be this big Heroic thing, like he was talking about in Vietnam. I think it's very similar in Iraq and Afghanistan. Like, he, like brave. Like I never knew bravery could just be waking up in the morning and walking, just going out into an environment, a terrain you don't know when a bomb's going to go off. Everyone's trying to kill you, but you don't know is is this just a person living their life or is this a person who wants to kill me because they look the same? Um, and him just saying, like, I would just look down at my legs sometimes, just asking myself how am i walking like how am i going forward how am i getting you know in this case in this car and just driving over a road that i know probably has you know roadside bombs all over it it's just like it's just crazy the mentality um that you have to be and just being on edge all the time and it's just like no wonder that's going to have an effect on you and i was looking it up before the call like different studies but everywhere from like 11 to 20 percent of soldiers, some up to thirty percent of soldiers experiencing PTSD um, for you know like this specific like Iraqi freedom things like that. That's a high number. Yeah, it's a, a high lot. number. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just uh, you know, I think to be able to speak to someone who you know has been in that situation and who has, you know, very openly and admittedly, I mean, it's war. Like you, yeah, people kill people in war, but to just you know be able to talk about that situation of you know taking another person's life who may be a an child operation. and like
1: and that was the thing that was like that was cool about the episode because it was so like real in that you know in those situations like for the guy to be like yo i volunteer to shoot this kid yeah and we got the reason why and it was a very real reason why because at the end of the day like even when you watch like movies about the army or like whatever there is an element of people being bored and being like i wish it was a firefight right now right, you know? right 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 and it's like that that can't come from nowhere but it's like what he what he said in his experience he's like once you get it but like once that first one goes off you're like well fuck this like i didn't want
0: to do that yeah yeah you know and he just he wanted said to get it, once the bombs go off like you don't want to fight yeah you don't want to fight and yeah. like i think that's and it's out of pure survival that you have to it's like the mike tyson quote like everyone has a game plan until they get Punched, punched in the mouth. face yeah. or you know us like we're, we're big boxers now we've been working out like <laughs> once you get that first jab in the face it, it's like okay this this is a little different than Less what fun. i thought it was yeah <laughs> um but wow wow yeah thank thank you for their service um and thank you for everyone's service who is currently serving or, or has served
1: yeah um but anyway if uh you guys again you could check us out on YouTube, youtube.com slash other people's lives to watch full episodes um, of the
0: podcast. Yes, this is up. If you're listening, this is up right now. You can come watch us have this conversation.
1: Right, and our Instagram is at Podcast. so go follow us on
0: Instagram as well. Yep, uh, we got bonus episodes on the Patreon, patreon.com slash OPLshow, and uh, please leave a rating and a review. It helps a lot on iTunes, and thank you, as always, for listening.